Hey, Dave, thanks for calling in, man. I appreciate the time today. Sure, no problem. So I wanted to hit you with the tour and talk about some old tours and uh, get your opinion on a couple things. But uh, let's sure. start Let's start off with the uh, clear and present and what we got to look forward to, kind of celebrating Power Trip on this tour. Going to be in Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard, April 8th at the Fonda Theater, along with Nebula and Silver Tomb. And Correct. I'm curious, in, in kind of going back and this being a, a celebration of Power Trip, was there anything in your uh, research, so to speak, and digging back and listening to the album again that kind of uh, uh, surprised you, whether it be good or bad? Like, oh, my God, I can't believe I hit that note or, oh, my God, I can't believe I wrote that lyric. Like, was there anything uh, yeah, that jumped yeah, out to you? Definitely. I mean, all that stuff always happens. Um, I, I just looked at it like I, I remember doing that record and it was really it was crazy because they wanted a lot of songs back in those days on cds they wanted a lot of songs i thought the song i thought the uh, the record was too long but i thought i delivered enough songs that it was all right so i had to write more so now i look back at the record and go like what are you writing about and it's pretty <laughs> funny it's definitely it's a snapshot of where i was in my head at that time so it's interesting to look at a old record like that it's like looking at a diary and I always kind of heard the rumor that it was kind of a your own little version of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas at that time of writing and recording Power Trip. Kind of. I mean, I was really inspired by Hunter S. Thompson, still am, and just his whole trip to Vegas had just turned me on since I was, you know, like a 14-year-old kid. So this was my <laughs> chance to do something like that. You know, at least that's the way I just, I just crowbarred it in. I was like, that's what I'm doing. I'm going there. And brought out brought out the uh, some of the best work ever, obviously. And you know, I, I was going to ask you too. I think I'm, I'm hoping you're going to play uh, "Bummer" on this tour because I think now more than ever the world needs to hear that tune. <laughs> or were you kind of uh, looking into the future? I mean, I think we've always had those type of people, but I feel like maybe it's like some mogwais that found the ocean and they've multiplied since then because it seems like now more than ever that tune is is more appropriate. I'm, I'm sorry to say, I thought it was appropriate then, and uh, it's way more appropriate now. <laughs> yeah, I tend to just look at things and just comment, you know, like that's the way I would talk to write songs and comment on um, how my life interacts with, like, the way I'm supposed to be or the way society tells me I'm supposed to be or just what the norms are, whatever. And uh, it's all kind of a cosmic joke to me, but at the same time, it's like I ain't laughing. Yeah, it, it's scary how, how true that, that song rings true, just listening to that album before talking to you and going, wow, like that's that's a really prevalent problem. And I certainly hope one that was in the, that's going to be in the set. And I, I guess it's kind of a dumb question, too. But looking back at that time, did you have any idea of what Space Lord was going to do or was it just another track on the album for you? No, I didn't. You know, first, I, I don't know from singles. I'm like really bad with that stuff. So... I never looked at Magnet as a singles band. Um, to tell you the truth, I was just completely blown away that I was that we had gotten as far as we did. So I wasn't really writing singles, except for just like songs, you know, catchy songs. So I didn't know. And then when people picked up on it, I had to actually cut it down in length. It was pretty long originally. Really. Yeah, and so it was the same old, it's like the old story where the record company goes, there's a single. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, and, and so if you ask me, I don't think a, a Hawkwind-sounding song, a song called Space Lords, like how does that relate in the singles market? Like shows you how much I know. I, I don't get it, you know? And uh, like, trust me, that's what the radio guys are reacting to. I think it was just such so, a, a breath of fresh air at that time. 
Yeah, maybe maybe it was had it did sound different. You know, I always I was always trying to sound different from anything else that was on the radio. You know, and that was like my main thing was like, well, I don't want to sound like that. And the time period where grunge had started to play itself out. Yeah, and there were a lot of there were a lot of role models, and you know that's when Stone Temple Pilots began. It was like, oh look, it's Nirvana Junior. Everyone started copying riffs, the original grunge, and it, it looked like the same old like turnover again. Okay, everyone's going to copy. I mean, that's the way pop music goes, rock goes. I was just too busy like copying my heroes, you know, trying to stick Hawkwind and Black Sabbath and Stooges all into one little ball. I didn't mind stealing from the past, but I definitely didn't want to steal from the present. It's just too obvious. You know, another thing that you always incorporated in the music and certainly on Power Trip, too, that I didn't did, I guess, didn't really register until listening to the album again was there was a lot of keyboards and, and organs and synths and, and programming and sequencing and stuff. As much as a, a, a garage rock sound you have, you also kind of still incorporated that technology and you still kind of made it fresh and current and, and modern. Yeah, I was, I was just having a really good time. Like the budget was bigger. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the. We had a, a couple of pretty successful albums, and you know I was on a major now, so I just kept um, going like, well, let's try this, let's try that, and it was kidney candy store kind of stuff. And uh, well, whatever the song like told me to do, I would do it. So I would just listen to it. Go, oh, I need a keyboard. Oh, I need this. You know, a xylophone or or whatever. It's really fun to do. You know, it was cool to see that you had done a, a Black Celebration cover and kind of talked about your, your love for uh, Depeche Mode, and I kind of wondered if that kind of played into it at all, because me being a staunch, you know, rock, hard rock, heavy metal guy, I have, I love Depeche Mode as well, and I think they they are rock know, and roll. right? Why is that? I, I know other people who are like that, too. I, I think it's got something to do with the, the melodies, yeah. you know what I mean? I mean, it's like you could probably be pretty easy to rock up some of that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, Depeche Mode like to d- defy all logic. But I did, we did the Depeche Mode right in that same studio during those sessions, too. Oh, really? Um, yeah, we were doing Power Trip, and, and we got the request for the Depeche Mode cover, so we just stopped everything and did the Depeche Mode thing. That's a brilliant cover and a brilliant tune, and and it's certainly you know not one of the uh, the obvious songs. A little bit of a, a deeper cut, you know. It wasn't like you know people are people or one of the ob- super obvious hits right. from well, them. I, I think they didn't give us any of the. I think the bigger guys like took the obvious ones, and so I was like, okay, uh, like oh. celebration, sure. Oh, so you didn't get to pick? They they just kind of issued that song. Did like here, go cover this. No, there's a packing order. Gotcha. You know? There's a pecking order, so it's like, well, sorry. You know, I remember like they asked us to do a Who one one time, and of course I wanted to do Bob O'Reilly, and they just laughed at me. <laughs> what do you think? You know, that goes to Pearl Jam, buddy. Or, or somebody who sells more records. But that's the way it goes. No problem. Hey, you know, speaking of things kind of outside of the album and, and special recordings and stuff, I wanted to touch upon a, one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, Matt Hardy. You did the theme song for Live for the Moment and kind of wanted to hear about, were you commissioned for that? Did you get to write it? Was that your own tune and, and, and your experience with the WWE universe? That was the most bizarre thing I've ever been through in my entire life. It's like it only took about three days to do, but it stuck in my memory as if it was three years. I was out of my, I didn't even watch wrestling. You know, I'm like not a wrestling guy. And uh, so I don't know nothing from nothing. I, my a manager gives me a call and goes, you want to do a theme song for a wrestler? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I need the money, you know? How much money? <laughs> yes, you know, they will pay you. I live in New Jersey and the, and the World Federation headquarters is in Connecticut. That's just two and a half hours away. And they go, you can do the whole thing in Connecticut, just two and a half hours. You know, they'll have a, a producer and an engineer in the studio and everything. It's just 
go up there and do it, and it'll be done. And he just got to write a song for the guy. And it was like, right, I think it was right before Christmas and whatever year it was. And the only thing is, but you have to have it done by like January 4th. And it was right before Christmas. So I, I don't know how I got snaggled into this, but I did. <laughs> so I just sat down and wrote it. I didn't even look at the guy. I didn't look at who he was or anything. Wow, and, sight unseen. Uh, yes, yeah, so sight unseen. And I was like, I don't know. I don't, I didn't know what to write about. I didn't have any any clue. It was just one of those ones where I was just pulling it out of my head. Just, uh, I forget the name of that song now, but it's, it's something about standing up strong and tall and beating live, people up. Live, live for the moment? Live for the moment, right, right, right. Just wrote it. Taught it to two guys in the band because the other two guys were away for Christmas. Just went up to the studio and went into World Federation Wrestling Land. Like... <laughs> They have a compound. you, you got to see this place. It's insane. It's all in-house. Oh, yeah. They can do anything there. They can, they can shoot videos. They can record music. It's there. You're, like, in their land. Like, nobody does that stuff anymore. It was like old Hollywood. That's what it, that, you know? Yeah. It reminded me of, like, an old Hollywood, like, all-in-one studio thing. So I went in there and got with those people, and they were nice as pie. Yeah, super nice. And it was done. Did you uh, see any uh, results, I guess, from that? Did you notice any fans coming from the WWE universe? I did, yeah. I did. I had people come up, and I was embarrassed because I didn't know. They're like, yeah, me and Ed, man, how's Ed doing? And I was like, I don't know. I never met the guy. <laughs> one other uh, one other thing I wanted to kind of touch upon, kind of outside of that, that uh, spectrum of a normal uh, album which I miss. I wish Hollywood would get back to his movie soundtracks, which you were a bunch of, of a part of them. Of course, Talladega Nights and Bright yeah. of Chucky and The Crow Salvation. And I miss that marriage of, of movies and music. I always thought that was such a cool thing and a cool way to discover bands. And I know I did as a kid growing up, like discovered many bands that way. But kind of wanted to hear uh, from you how those kind of went. Were, were those always? Uh, any of those commissioned ahead of time or was it them just kind of grabbing a track off the album and slapping it on there, but kind of your experience with uh, movie soundtracks? There was a, like, it, it was really aggressive showbiz thing, publishers and managers, because there was an, a, a market for it. There was an appetite for it from the, from the film directors and just the movie people. They wanted rock songs that, that changed quickly over to just hip hop songs. You know what I mean? It was like, they, it was basically, Hip-hop and electronica-driven became the thing after the rock stuff. Right. Um, which is like the history of the world, but everything. But um, they were, there was a big, uh, it, was a, it was a buy and sell thing, um, and managers and publishers would fight really, really hard to get their bands on these things. So uh, there's a bunch of parties people would go to, and, you know, they'd have, you know, CDs and go, well, this is a, I heard about this move, this new movie is in production. I think you should like review this band and stuff. It was pretty brutal. Um, and there were a lot of favors given for that kind of stuff too. Um, bigger bands, um, would try to name their price and they'd get knocked out of the ring because they asked for too much and they go to a, like a band that didn't make quite as much money. And, uh, yeah, it was quite a racket. And uh, we got in there because of a couple of directors who actually wanted us. And because we had an aggressive manager at that time, it was trying to, like, fit us in. Um, so it wasn't always, uh, you know, it wasn't always an aesthetic, you know, aesthetic uh, compliment. It was uh, just plain hardcore business. Wow. Kind of a kid. There's a lot of money in that stuff, you know. There was money in that stuff, so. 
kind of akin to the to the radio payola days, you know, when they were paying radio stations in the 70s and kind stuff. Kind of, except nobody really paid anybody. I think it was a matter of, like, who got to these guys first. Right. And, uh, uh, although I'm sure there were some favors given one point. Like, it's like, hey, you know, a, a publishing company is a publishing company has, uh, like, a huge mega band plus a bunch of littler bands. Right. Go, you know, we're going to have to mega band if you pick up the two littler bands and give them a try, too. Yeah. I'm sure aesthetically... Aesthetically, it, at one point, it had to make sense to these directors and, and movie guys. But a lot of times, I think uh, they just kind of force the aesthetics. You know. Hmm. Any any uh, fans gained or or uh, see see some uh, reverberation from being on those soundtracks? Did they translate? It's not like a fans game, but I think it's just an overall awareness. Okay. You know, it was an overall awareness. It's like I, I think the, the most. Most awareness we got from from something outside our record was on a on a video game called Roadburn. Oh, really? And uh, that seemed to, to happen because in the video games, people play it over and over and over again. Yeah, you know, it's not like the Watchtower game Sega Nights like two or three times, but the video games will play it like a hundred times, and their friends watch it. And that really gets burned into their their psyche. That got, yeah, I think that got more. Awesome, Dave. It I, all makes sense and does something for you, but you can never really figure out quite what. Yeah, there's no you know, exact I've, formula. I've never an experience of like I was sitting down and watching Talladega Nights. I had to pause it to go out and buy your record. <laughs> and I never actually saw that happen. But. Right, just an accumulation and, and like you said, building that awareness of the brand and the of the band. Yeah, right. Dave, I appreciate all the time. Just a couple little last ones for you. If we could uh, fire up the DeLorean uh, uh, one more time and kind of go back to the early years. I kind of wanted to talk about uh, the early years, like in, back in 91 when you toured with Soundgarden and unfortunately the late, great Chris Cornell and see if you had any stories or experiences oh, wow. with him from back then. And then also kind of as a part two, didn't that kind of that tour or the band or did Chris help you get the deal with A&M because shortly thereafter you signed with A&M right yeah it was like the, the Soundgarden guys were the absolute coolest one of the coolest bands I ever met in that respect I mean that was like out of a out of a, a storybook you know big band takes little band uh, under its wing and goes hey look you know look at these guys really really cool um, we were we had an album out two records out on the indie and uh, Soundgarden had appeared on uh, on 120 Minutes with an alternative rock show on uh, on MTV when MTV was big and it turns out that they liked, they dug the, the, the Magnet records and one guy had a shirt you know he had like a, like a Monster Magnet shirt on wow and uh, I was like man this is so cool they were playing they were doing a tour before this is before Mad, Mad Miller Finger so whatever record there was before, and uh, they had played New Jersey in our home state, and we angled to get on the bill from the local promoter. We got on the bill from the local promoter, and they were happy, met them, and they were all super cool, and they were just like, yeah, we'll do it, you know, we'll spread the word, man, we really like the record. Sure enough, like, you know, a year later, or a year and a half later, uh, Bad Motor Fingers coming out, we're kind of making an indie mark in Europe, you know, my manager calls and says, you know, Sam Gardner looking for openers and they, they, you know, they want you, you know, can you do it? And I was like, yeah. So, yeah, and it was great. And the tour was awesome. I mean, those guys were 
super nice guys. And like back then, at, at that point, they were going for it. You know what I mean? Like Bad Motor Finger was a rock record. And they were a rock band. There, there was none of this, like, you know, kind of like, oh, we don't know what we want to do kind of stuff that happened later. With the, you know, they kind of toned it down. Right. Um, but they were going for it, you know. Long hair, Chris Cornell, the whole bit. It was insane. Taught me so much. And they were so completely nice to us. Ben Shepard, just really like, hey, man, you know, I'm, like, we got a big bus. We know you guys are in a van. If, if somebody wants to ride on the bus, if, you know, just way way cool uh, nothing but good memories about those guys they were so so awesome any any moments jump out about Chris whether it was watching him from the side stage or any conversations or anything with him directly yeah I mean we had a bunch of conversations like with all the guys Chris was kind of apart from the guys his manager he was married to his manager and his manager you know protected him from talking too much and stuff he had this amazing voice and um, it was like, you know, don't talk. You know, <laughs> so he tried to get out of there and go, oh, yeah, I want to talk. He was just super nice. And uh, they're very, very, um, I remember with Chris, he was very, very aware, super aware. All those guys are aware of their stature and very, very concerned about not being perceived as a cock rock band. Mm-hmm. I remember that's what we talked about the most. He goes, yeah, you know, I don't want people to think, uh, no. If we, you know, we're like copping Led Zeppelin or something. And I remember having arguments with them going like, well, you are Led Zeppelin. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, go ahead and do it. But they were, you know, that was the indie days. People were really, really concerned about, about their, uh, about how they were perceived in, um, in rock history. Yeah. And, uh, it was still close to hair metal and still the metal and they were taking chances and they knew they were taking chances. And I remember being like very, uh, it made me very aware too. Um, he was super nice and they're all conscientious and nice guys and like no assholes. Yeah. No assholes. Like totally funny. And I said, to, uh, him killing himself. Holy shit. Horrible. Yeah. Horribleness. Yeah. The demons, they don't let you go. No. Well, I'm sure it was obvious back then in 91 that what a star he was going to be and what a voice of an angel he had. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. It was, a way, it was just amazing. I mean, nobody sang like that. <laughs> you know, singing, like that type of singing had, had been buried. It was not cool to sing that way. And he made it cool again. You know, I mean, at that point, I remember it, Brenda, it's like, this is, if these guys are pulling off something, which I was, because I'm total rock. You know, yeah. I love rock. I, you know, I love rock. I didn't. I wasn't a big fan of the whole "we're a bunch of losers" thing in grunge. You know, like well, we're losers. You know, and <laughs> and Kurt Cobain killing himself and stuff, and just like the non-star thing didn't make any sense to me. Right. Um, and it, it, I realized that it was important to like distance yourself from the past or the excesses of the past. But there was so much stuff in the recent past that was so cool. I, I was always thought they were throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And Mudhoney and Soundgarden did not do that. Right. They still were rock, and they were relevant. And it was like, well, this is the way, you know, for me. And I was like, I want to be with these guys. <laughs> and you know, it's like, I want to, you know, I want to be with these guys. I want to stand with Weezer, you know, I want to stand with these guys. The rock and rollers, the real rock and rollers. Yeah. right. 
And how did that, I guess, was it, did the Soundgarden specifically say anything to A&M or was it just kind of you playing in front of A&M reps every um, night? There was like a couple things going on at the same same time. There were a bunch of, of companies looking at us. Um, and again, it was just one of that, that was one, one big component. But um, there were other components as well. Like we were doing really, really well in Europe on our own. We had started, you know, with Spina God and Tab. So we had people looking at us anyway, but the Soundgarden, the Soundgarden um, shout out, more than a shout out, it was like, come on, come on aboard, definitely put us in a lot closer uh, relationship with A&M that we would have been uh, previously that, but um, they were all, they were all there. We had about six record companies, but it's funny, I went with A&M again at the end. Not because of Soundgarden, but because the, uh, not because I wanted to be on the same label as Soundgarden, but because I could understand the relationship to Soundgarden had with that label, and I thought it was pretty cool. Ah, so it did it you did know, factor they in. Much let them be, and they let them they let them be, and that seemed like a good idea to me. Yeah, absolutely. It, Dave, one last uh, one last kind of question for you. Tour one to go back to one that I was at. I'm, yeah, I guess you can talk to specifically the tour, but if you remember the specific show, because it was kind of uh, infamous, going back to the Hole and Marilyn Manson tour and going back yeah. to the uh, L.A. Forum show where uh, uh, Marilyn got about four songs in and fell and the yeah. show was canceled. Do you remember that night? Any Anything from that? Oh, yeah, I, I totally remember. That was a huge deal. Um, uh, the on-tour drama was just about as thick as it can get. I mean, it was, I remember saying to myself doing that whole tour, I, I don't think it's going to get better than this because of the out, those outsized personalities, people like Courtney Love and Manson, like together. I mean, it's exactly <laughs> what you want. Right. You know, you, the drama with unbelievable egos were over the top and everybody loved it. You know, you just, the crowd loved it. We loved it. They loved it. There was a battle on who was, you know, they had a, a deal, you know, one of those promoter deals where it's like, well, we'll just flip headliners every night. You know, sometimes, you know, one night Manson will headline and one night uh, Courtney Love, you know, Hole will headline. And it was like, that doesn't work with people like that. They go crazy. You know, <laughs> they wanted, you know, each one of those bands wanted the headline. I'm totally convinced in my mind that, that Manson, in his devious way, kind of fake that whole thing to buy him some time really to get her off the bill yeah that's just my that's my conspiracy theory tell me why tell me why well it just made a lot of sense they we were going right along and the bands were fighting like cats and dogs and they wanted control over that thing um over the headline slot i mean it doesn't even it's one of those things where it, it, we're talking about rock here, so we're not talking about making, you know, military sense. You know? It's right. not going to always be logical. I, I think one possible reason could be, like, if you could get some time to work out some of these contractual things which were going on at the time, that's what I heard from the mansion camp, is that they were kind of fighting it out on trying to, like, either the band wanted to cut Courtney Love loose and also, Hole wanted to cut Manson loose. They both wanted that tour for themselves. Were they the same you know? management at that time? 
No, no. Oh. Um, so I'm sure there was a bunch of crap going on. Now, again, you know, I have to say, I mean, I, what do I know? I don't know. I'm just here <laughs> stuff. But that was the vibe, and I liked the vibe. Huh. And I was digging on it. I was like, yeah. And, uh, yeah, there was all kind of, uh, you know, in, in between those two, it was a great kind of rivalry because I think they both knew that it was kind of a joke, but at the same time, it's not a joke because you're in a rock band, so it's really not a joke. You know, it's like you can look back. If you're a journalist or a writer or a fan, you can look and try to make these things make sense and go, oh, well, this is just this, it's just that. But when you're actually in a band and you're one of those people that play in front of that many people, it's like these things become important. Oh, yeah. We got to get that band out of here, you know, that kind of thing. I love it. Well, it's just like athletes on the field, you know, like Mike Trout and Cody Bellinger, two of the best. When they play each other, they want to they they try a little bit extra harder. They're going to give a little bit extra yeah. more. There's always going to be that that friendly rivalry competition. But right, and you know, when you get a big place like these are big giant stadiums, it's big. You know, about as big as you can get, and uh, you want to own you want to own the responsibility for filling that place. I filled that place. It wasn't because. You know, the, uh, you know, our management came together and said, you know, said the real thing. We don't think either of you can fill a place like this by yourselves. <laughs> they don't want to hear that. Right. But that's really what it was. Right. You know, that's really what it was. It's like, you look, if you put these two big guys together, you know, you can fill it. And uh, sure enough, when hole went off, they stopped filling it. Who was the second band? Because there was another band, or was it just the two of you that went out with that hole afterwards? I can't remember. There was another. Um, uh, went, oh no! Then we went out, and there was a band called Jack Off Jill was on the was on the bill for a while. Um, I think they were from Florida, and uh, so I mean, the original originally the big setup was you know Manson and Hole and whoever, and the, the whoever happened to be us, <laughs> and. Uh, so we did that, and then when when Courtney left, then it was just Manson and us, and this and another uh, you know the uh, indie band called Jack Up Jill. Okay, yeah, I remember the bill had changed when it came around again because they at that t- being a ticket holder, they said you know hang on to your tickets, a date will be rescheduled, and then I right. remembered it was and it wasn't whole, and I couldn't remember who that other band was, but it wasn't anyone that jumped oh, out. Oh, uh, Nashville Pussy for a while. Okay. Nashville, it was Jack Up Jill for, for a bunch of dates and Nashville Pussy for a while. And, okay. Um, yeah, it was nuts. It was, uh, you know, a lot of wondering, a lot of like, you know, like these big places, you know, these are big places, dude. <laughs> that was, he did but, have, um, he did have a great stage show back then. I remember him coming up on the TVs with the TVs behind him, like on a cross. It was one of the best stage shows I've ever seen because he didn't leave it. Like, that's the thing about Manson. As opposed to, um, uh, you know, in this day and age of like super technical stage shows, you know, probably some of the best stage shows ever. Manson was a part of the show. Yeah. You know, the show, the, the, the pyrotechnics and, and, the, and the, all the stuff, it didn't overwhelm the band. He, it was like coming out of him. You know, he was a really, really great front man. He used that stuff to make himself better. Um, that's kind of gone by the wayside these days. I mean, I see bands with huge shows, but they just kind of stand there and the show kind of overwhelms them. It was him. I mean, what other front man do you know that would walk around on giant stilts? Oh, yeah. It was, it was a, amazing. A spectacle, full-on spectacle. Yeah, he was really, really good. You know, I mean, 
it, there was no way you couldn't watch that thing. And I watched it all the time every night. I was like, this is just one of the greatest things. And I'd seen everything at that point. You know, I'm old enough to be able to see. I saw Alice Cooper in the early 70s and Bowie, Diamond Dogs tour. And Manson was better. Yeah. And he, he, you know, he took all, all the stuff from all those guys and a little bit of Pink Floyd, too, and turned it into, like, this really pointed spectacle. Like, and better than Nine Inch Nails, too, you know? Just better show me. Yeah, just better. He was in. And Manson, I got nothing bad to say about Manson. He was, um, you got what you paid for, and then some. <laughs> and you didn't know what was going to happen. It was dangerous rock and roll. You didn't, you weren't no, quite sure what you were going to get. No, what's going to happen. Yeah, he could, actually. And he does. I mean, you know, that my whole conspiracy theory about faking that thing. He probably, you know, it's just as easy that he didn't because he took chances. Yeah, maybe he didn't you know? just fall that night. Who knows? Yeah. He fell a lot. I saw him fall all the time. Those stilts and stuff. He went like way back on those stilts one time. Uh, it was like total. Um, it's like being in the circus. Yeah. You, know, you you do a circus show every night. The, the, the chances are that some of those nights is not going to work. Yeah, just like the WWE guys. His work ethic. Huh? And just like those WWE guys, you know, you get put your body involved, accidents are going to happen. Even though it's a show, it's like anything can yeah, happen. Yeah, those, those guys got hurt all the time. Yeah. yeah, they get hurt all the time. It's like they don't even know what hurt. It, their definition of being hurt is completely different from ours. <laughs> yeah, they hurt all over every inch of their body. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, if one thing happened to you and I, that would happen to those guys. We'd be like, okay, I, I have to take a year off. You know, but they're like, all right, well, let's get back on a horse. <laughs> right. Dave, and I appreciate all the time. I don't want to keep you anymore, but I do feel like I got to ask, do we have some some new uh, Monster Magnet music coming, maybe an album title I could pronounce on the radio in the future, perhaps? Uh, I wish I could give you a title, but I'm, I'm just like, after this thing is done, I I go into like lockdown mode for writing a new album. So I don't have any titles now. But it's, it's coming. A new album. Okay. So probably next year by the time it comes out. Yes. Yeah. It'll be next year. Got back from Europe now. Like we do most of our work in in Europe now. So like America, you know, Europe gets a tour every year. America gets a tour like every two years. Well, I'm looking forward to it, man. Certainly looking forward to to the show at the Fonda on April 8th in Hollywood. I appreciate all the time. Dude, you rock. Thanks for checking out the entire podcast. Now just hit the subscribe button. That way you get it sent to you directly. And follow me on social media at MikeZ967. Don't miss the radio show, bro. Wired in the Empire happens every Saturday night at midnight on 96.7 KCAL Rocks online at kcalfm.com. Adios,